Father, we thank you for the freedom that you've given us because of what Jesus has done. And I pray that whatever we brought with us, Lord, or whatever's in our past or whatever we hold on to, that you would break the bondage of those chains in the power and the name of Jesus Christ. Father, that we'd realize we're, we're to be set free that you have set us free, that whoever the Son sets free shall be free indeed. And I pray that we will live in that freedom as we respond to that message of, of the freedom, the power in the name of Jesus. I pray today, Lord Jesus, that, that you would again open our eyes to who you are as we worship you and praise you, as we dwell in your presence, that you're, you are here with us. And I pray now that, Lord, in a supernatural way, that you would take the living word of God and the word of te our testimony to speak to our hearts and change us today, that we would leave different. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In 1977, I was a school teacher in a small town in North Dakota called Richardton. I was a young idealist right out of college, and I had a mission, change the world, change the world. Back then, we all saw a world that really needed to be changed, and we, of course, were the ones that were gonna do it. America had come through the 1950s with the beginning of the erosion of family values. The 60s brought a full-scale assault on all values. The, the youth culture began to question and challenge the values and validities of their parents' lifestyles. Then came the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, mass demonstrations, and civil disobedience. All of the anarchy and civil disobedience and anti-government marches and protests that we've seen today are nothing compared with what happened back in those days. And the boomers here can attest to that. It seemed as if all the solid institutions, government, schools, churches, even families were being torn apart. It was now the 70s and our country seemed to be heading nowhere. The Jesus movement and the college campus revivals of the early 70s had, had inspired all of us but had seemed to have lost momentum. I had set out to change the world through education. It was a noble goal. I wanted to make a difference in the lives of high school students. But the more I observed and looked at the problems in America, the most educated nation on earth, I concluded that education alone was not going to change the world. I investigated politics and observed that even though laws can be enacted and even enforced, one cannot expect legislation or government alone to bring the long-lasting change that our world needs. I looked at all the other solutions that were being shopped around, offered to all of us, sociology or philosophy, science, psychology, socialism, Marxism, communism, environmentalism, spiritualism, astrology. What was left? Theology or religion, Christianity to be exact. I reached the conclusion many had reached long before I was ever born. The only way to change the world for the better, totally, was to change men and women from the inside out, to change the heart, change the mind, 
to change the nature, to change the entire person. Without radical transformation of the nature of human beings, there was never going to be any lasting change. And there was only one person in all of history who claimed and has succeeded in changing people from the inside out. That person, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Now, even though I'd grown up in the church, that moment of discovery was the turning point of my early life. From that point on, I dedicated myself anew to introducing people to the person of Jesus Christ so their life also could be changed. Today, 40 years later, our world is not much different. It still desperately needs changing. We still have breakup of families, assault on family values, the redefinition of marriage and gender. We're still dealing with the issues of the value of human life, whether it's the rights of the unborn to live or selling of baby parts for medical purposes, human rights, racism, sex trafficking, and slavery. We still have wars, rumors of wars of all kinds. So what is the solution? Or who, who is the solution? And asking the question, where is the church in all of this? Is the church a fortress, a safe house where we can escape from all those evils around us? Is the church a place to enjoy loving and caring relationships away from the turmoil around us? Is it a place to be taught and to be, to be fed and to, and to grow spiritually? Is the church the safe place to, to raise our children so they don't do drugs and engage in risky behavior and they just turn out all right? Does the church exist only for those inside the safe walls? Or does the church exist for those outside? What is the purpose of the church? This church in particular. What is our mission? What is our mission? Actually, remember the church is people, not an organization, it's not a building. It's a people, the church. And our mission as a church, a group of people, is articulated very clearly on our website at the top of our program, and I'm gonna put it up on the screen right in front of everybody as we read through it. You can read through it at the top of your program. Everybody have, there we go. Eau Claire Wesleyan Church exists to navigate life together in knowing God, representing him well through loving relationships and relevant conversations that encourage people, whether skeptic, seeking, or already in relationship with Jesus, into becoming devoted, spirit-filled followers of Jesus Christ. In John 17, 18, in the message, Jesus, talking to God the Father about his followers and about us, says this. He says, in the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. In John 20, 21, Jesus says to his followers and to us, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. What are we being sent to do? Paul says it in Acts 20, 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. What was that? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. The gospel. Gospel means the good news. It's the best news ever. It's the best news ever. In Matthew 28, he talks about making disciples. In Acts 1.8, he says, be my witnesses. 
And then he says it differently in, in Acts 1.17. And every time he talks about something, it adds a different dimension. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So he says, make disciples, be witnesses, and fish for people. What does that mean? What does that mean, fish for people? There's a parable of the fishermen, which is found in Church Growth America magazine. And uh, it goes like this. Modern day parable. It says, now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish. And the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, these who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to go about fishing. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. They sponsored costly nationwide and worldwide congresses to discuss fishing and to promote fishing and hear about all the ways of fishing, such as new fishing equipment, fish calls, and whether any new bait was discovered. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. All the fishermen seemed to agree that what was needed is a board that could challenge fishermen to be faithful in fishing. The board was formed by those who had great vision and courage to speak about fishing, to define fishing, and to promote the idea of fishing in faraway streams and lakes where many other fish of different colors lived. Large, elaborate, expensive training centers were built whose purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Some spent much study and travel to learn the history of fishing and to see faraway places where the founding fathers did great fishing in centuries past. They lauded the faithful fishermen of years before who handed down the idea of fishing. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and sent to fish, and they went off to foreign lands to teach fishing. Now, it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs. They anguished over those who were not committed enough to attend weekly meetings to talk about fishing. After all, were they not following the master who said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Imagine Imagine how hurt some of them were when one day a person suggested that those who don't catch fish were really not fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be. Yet it, it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he or she never catches a fish? Is one following if he or she isn't fishing? Fish don't jump into the boat. They have to be caught. It was interesting, we were driving, driving to Minneapolis, taking our daughter to the airport this week, and we looked out over, uh, it's the Red Cedar Lake, and there are all these fishing, what do you call them, fishing cabins, what do you, 
Shacks, yeah, fishing shacks over there. And I said to Brittany, see that? They're fishing. She said, what? What are they, you know, they just didn't know. You have to actually catch fish. Bruce Larson wrote, Jesus did not tell the world to go to the church. He told the church to go to the world. Jesus told us, make disciples. And I, I know this is scary for many of you. And I trust over the next three weeks and over the next actually three months, we'll take some of the scare out of fishing, out of sharing our faith. Bill Hybels wrote the book, Just Walk Across the Room. And we're going to be studying that in our connect groups. And if you've not yet signed up, as Pastor Damien encourage you, sign up for that. If you cannot be in a connect group for this session, we will have extra books that you can, you can purchase so that you can engage in the reading and process and discussion of this whole process of making disciples. What is involved in becoming fishers of men or making disciples? Well, the making of disciples is a process. It's a process that, that takes time. We tend to think of evangelism, we're making disciples, people coming to faith, as an event. It's something that happens as a one-time event. And, and there is a starting point at which every person becomes born again, starting a new life in Christ. But it really is a process that takes time. Much like before a baby is born, every one of us is born physically. At some point, we were born physically, but there was a long process that happened in development prior to our actual birth. In the same way, we as, as, as individuals and people take a while to get to that point of birth. It's a process. Evangelism begins many times with what we call pre-evangelism. You know, that's just a, a word that describes that. What is pre-evangelism? Pre-evangelism for us is building relationships with pre-Christians or non-Christians non-believers building relationships with people that don't know Jesus because it's God's will that all people will come to know and believe in Jesus. Most people that have chosen to follow Jesus have taken some time for that process to develop. In fact, studies have shown that people hear the good news of Jesus on average, this on average, 5.8 times before making a decision. So they've heard it numbers of times before they make a decision. I, I've included an insert in your, in your program, and if, you, if you'd be so kind as to pick it out, look at the angle scale. The reason the print is so small is because it had to match the print on the back, which needed a lot of, a lot of space. But anyway, this is the angle scale. This describes where people are on their spiritual journey. We've talked about this before, but I think it's very critical that we really understand this uh, in and out. The angle scale describes where people are on their spiritual journey. And you see that minus five says there's no awareness of a supreme being. Now, you can say, how can a person not be aware of a supreme being? There are people in our world that are not aware of a supreme being. Now, most people in America have some awareness, and so a lot of them are minus four. They are aware of a supreme being, and that may be all they're aware of. If you ask them about that, they would say, I believe that there was a supreme being. They may believe in intelligent design, whatever it is, but they believe somehow that there is a supreme being. And I think it's something like 80, 83% of Americans believe in God. So they believe that there is a supreme being. 
Now, then there, you move from that, just an awareness of a supreme being, to an awareness and a positive attitude toward the gospel. That means that they're not only aware of a supreme being, but they're aware of the claims of Christianity that, that, that Jesus came to die for our sins. He, he was born at Christmas time, as we celebrate, and he was crucified and he was resurrected on Easter. And, and they know a little bit more about that. And they, they realize that, that there's more to this story than just this this God up there, that God sent his son to, to establish relationship with human beings. And that, that those, that's an awareness of that and a positive attitude toward that. And then there's the decision to act, minus two, and then repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, everybody walks through these numbers at a different pace, and it's a process. Some people hear about Jesus, boom, just like that, they say, I believe. And they walk through all, all five stages at once. Other people might take five years, might take 10 years, might take a long time. It takes a lot of time interacting with people who have relationships with them that can share credibly what Jesus means to them. And there's a point at which, as, as Jesus talked about in John 3, there's a point at which you're born again. There's a point at which that happens. Now, we don't always know exactly when that happens. Some people say, I think it happened sometime in this, in this frame, and I re realized one day that I had, I had believed and given my life to Jesus. Other people have very dramatic conversion. It's, it's, it's all different for everybody. But there is a point at which people become new creations in Jesus Christ. They become new. And then there's incorporation into the body, which is the church of Jesus Christ, the behavioral growth and relationship with God. And then the reproducing of Jesus' life in the lives of other people, okay? That's, that's all part of this process. And every one of us is somewhere on this angle scale. And I'm not gonna say let's analyze or test that today, but, but just being aware of that. Why is that important? Because pre-evangelism is building relational bridges in order to earn the right to share our faith and help people move forward in their faith journey. Building relationships. I want to share a story. This guy's name was Mark also. The last summer before graduating from the University of North Dakota, I worked one of my many summer jobs. And this particular summer, I worked as a custodian at a local hospital. And one of my jobs as a custodian was to run the floor scrubbing machine up and down every corridor in this brand new six-story hospital. One day, I was running the scrubber and happened to look in one of the rooms as I passed, and I saw an acquaintance of mine. I was shocked because he was all bandaged up and had his right leg in a huge cast hanging up in the air in traction. He looked like one of those cartoon characters portrayed in, in hospital beds and casts in traction. I mean, he looked awful, and his leg was up in the air in traction. Well, I went in. His name was also Mark, and he was a trombonist, a pianist, and an organist, a music major that I knew from playing in ensembles and taking classes at the University of North Dakota. We had played in jazz band and wind ensemble, and we were casual acquaintances. And so I, I stepped away from the machine and went into the room, and I asked him, what happened to you? That's a logical question. Well, it was an auto accident. A couple nights before, he was, he was not only drunk, but he was stoned, and he was driving 90 miles per hour on a four-lane city street, and he missed a curve and ran into a house. Well, the house is pretty unforgiving, if you can imagine, and Mark was lucky to be alive. The collision fractured his right femur so badly, it ground about a fourth of an inch into powder, 
And he was to be in traction until that, that bone grew back in place. He was going to be there a while. In fact, he was going to be in traction. They figured about three months at least. So I, I said, ah, I'm going to visit him. So I visited him every day. Mark began to share his story with me as we, I got to know him. He had tried alcohol. He had tried binge drinking. He had tried every kind of drug that was available, varieties of sexual experimentation, on this quest to find happiness and fulfillment and meaning in life. And that night, he'd just given up. He jumped into his car and drove and woke up in the hospital, lucky to be alive. His story began to unfold, and I began to get to know him. He was a brilliant student. He was a thinker and one of the most gifted musicians I have ever known. And one day he said to me, you know, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Wow. Over the summer, one by one, his friends stopped coming to visit. One day he said to me in August, he said, you know, you're the only one that still visits me. And we talked about a lot of things. Eventually, he broached the subject of faith, and since I, I was his only friend, he had to listen to what I had to say. So I asked Mark if he wanted something to read, and he said, sure. So I brought him C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, Francis Schaeffer, he's there, he's not silent, several other books that I knew would relate to his intellectual understanding. One day, while in conversation, Mark told me that he had actually come to faith and given his life to Jesus. Now, why do I share this story? Because it demonstrates the process that many people go through to reach a decision of faith. It also represents an example of receptivity. As Mark said, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. He meant that it, had it not happened, this accident, he would never have been receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for the first time, he was receptive. On the other side of your insert is a receptivity rating scale. Receptivity. It's from the Holmes Ray Social Readjustment Scale. Talks about different things that we go through that, that make people receptive to change. The higher the score, the more receptive. And you can see if someone experienced the death of a spouse, they're at 100. A divorce, 73. Uh, a personal injury or illness, which Mark was, he was at a 53. Just getting married puts you at 50, okay? Uh, the pregnancy, you've got uh, addition to families, you have change in, in, in your life, mortgages, foreclosures. It talks about all these changes in living conditions, changes in schools, changes in recreational habits, changes in social actions, even Christmas season or Easter season. All of those things and many more are difficult for people and they make people more receptive to the gospel and more receptive to hearing that. This incident with Mark made him receptive to hearing about Jesus. That's why he said this is the best thing that ever happened to me. How do we get to know people and what do we get to know about them? As we get to know about them, we get to know their challenges and what they're dealing with and what is raising their receptivity. Because God does that, and he allows people to go through things to raise their receptivity so that they understand that they need God. That's how 
we come into the picture. We discover that. I'd like to share another story that illustrates the angle scale and the receptivity rating scale. I just joined the staff of a church in Kirkland, Washington, and one day my administrative assistant placed a note on my desk. It said there was an executive from the area that had requested to speak with a pastor. He was evidently well-known and did not want to meet at the church, but wanted to meet somewhere off campus. So I placed a call and I made a breakfast appointment for the next week. The first time I met Steve, it was awkward. It was awkward. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. We talked small talk for a while. Then he started in and shared with me some of the personal issues that he was facing. This is what raised his receptivity rating. It was primarily having to do with his marriage. And when he finished, I said, Steve, I could give you a lot of different advice. You seem to know all the issues and a lot of the solutions. He had referenced the book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus men and women being very different, and he, he understood all these issues and what was causing the conflict. But I said, the bottom line is that your situation will change only if you change. And I said, none of us has the power to change ourselves. We are selfish by human nature. I said, only Jesus Christ can change us. I shared briefly God's plan for a changed life through Jesus Christ. Our breakfast was finished. I had been so direct that I figured I'd never see him again. But to make sure, I just asked him if he would care to meet again. To my great surprise, he said, yes. Next week, same time, same place. I was stunned, stunned, and I said, sure. Steve and I met almost every Thursday morning for about three years. We talked about our families, our children, our sports, technology, current events, our college days, our failures, and our passions. And we talked about God. I admit that there were times I thought I was wasting my time. I just wanted to get to the point. But relationship takes time. Relationship takes time. Relationship takes time. God is never in a hurry. I'll never forget the day I asked Steve if I could pray for him before we left. He got this shocked look on his face and said, here, in public? See, we hadn't even prayed grace before breakfast. I felt a little guilty about that, but I didn't want to embarrass him, so, so I didn't pray before breakfast at all. I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I'll pray with my eyes open and just look out the window. He said, you can do that? And I said, sure. I said, God, just, just like talking to God. The most curious look of transformation came over Steve as I prayed for him, his wife, his children, his startup business, all while looking at him and looking out the window of the restaurant. It wasn't long after that that Steve prayed to receive Jesus Christ. It was a few months later, still meeting weekly, when I invited him to be my guest at the Promise Keepers men's event at the Seattle Kingdom. And the first night, when the invitation was given, after over two years of meeting every week, Steve looked at me and said, 
don't I need to do this too? That night, Steve made a public profession of his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to give the impression that I'm some sort of spiritual giant or the epitome of an evangelizing Christian, but just to share two relationships that God placed me in, time, care, relationship, transparency, and openness. As Bill Hybels puts it, just walk across the room. My goal for this message series and our goal for Connect Groups this winter is to take the fear out of evangelism, to normalize it as part of everyday relationships. I trust you're going to be encouraged to develop those relationships with people in your life and because come as comfortable sharing your faith as you are about the Packers or the Vikings or the weather or hunting or fishing or parenting or grandparenting or school or children or challenges, health or holidays. It really isn't rocket science. It's relationship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us opportunity to build relationships with many different people. And I pray, God, that as we, as we move forward, that you would just inspire us and you would equip us as we move forward. That, God, we would be so convinced by our belief in Jesus Christ that we would be compelled to share. That it would be out of love and relationship, not manipulation, but out of care and relationship. And that you would continue to transform us and change our lives. Thank you. Let's stand, shall we? And if you're here this morning and you want to give your life to Jesus and believe, as has been shared this morning, uh, Greg and Lynn are going to be over here. They'd be happy to share and pray with you, pray for you, share with you, or if you just have a prayer request of some sort for yourself or somebody else, feel free as we're dismissed in a moment to make your way over here and, uh, and be prayed for because God is a God who answers prayer. Let's be dismissed with the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless.